All right, Esther 2.18. It says this. Um, last week, before we do, uh, we saw that because the king loved Esther, she had found chased or grace in his eyes, and so he crowns her, and so he's now going to have a celebration in honor of his bride, just as we talked about God wants to honor us, believe it or not. And we kind of sometimes in our society can hear this attitude that, you know, God is all the glory, all of this kind of stuff. Yes, there is absolute truth to that. But I want you to know something. He desires to honor you as well. Our desire should be just to give him all glory, all honor. His desire, because he loves you, is to honor you, because in that, he gets glory. And so there is some theology out there today that kind of basically says, you know, you're just pawn scum even right now. God gets all the glory. You're worthless. You're, you... Like I said, yes, there is some truth to that, that we are pawn scum. We are worthless without Christ. But because of Christ, we are his special treasure. Okay, he does hold you up. This is what he did with Job. He said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Let me lift up Job because there is none like him on the earth. And so don't, don't think that God doesn't care for you. David said, who am I that God should be mindful of me? It's good for us to have that who am I attitude, but it's also good for you to realize what God thinks of you. Okay, You are worth dying on the cross for to him. So don't ever let that worthiness, because of what God has done, uh, leave your mind. There's so many people. <laughs> uh, there is. And, and like I said, there's some truth to it. I just think that pendulum can swing too far sometimes. And that's where we can get in trouble. So, um, Esther 2.18, And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials, he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. And so here is a celebration in the honor of Esther, as I said, who is a picture of the elect, the children of God. And he wants to give honor to Esther. And that's kind of what I'm talking about here. It sounds very familiar if you ever read the book of Revelation, right? There is a wedding banquet of the Lamb. What do you think that wedding banquet is for? It's to present his bride as pure. Remember even, I think, is it Corinthians that says that? To, to, to present her, oh, well, in Ephesians it talks about the, the uh, husband to the wife saying, you know, we are to present her as pure and blameless, spotless, by washing her with the water through the word. But then we also see the scripture saying that, you know, God is going to present us as pure virgins. In Revelation, it talks about that. We are to present him as pure virgins. That's what Esther is here. So, just to give you an idea, of how long do you think it has been from the time Vashti was expelled to this point. What's that? A year? Okay. Go look at chapter 1, verse 3. What does it say is the year of... The third year of his reign. Now go look in chapter 2, verse 16. Just back up two verses. <coughs> Four years have passed. What we see is it wasn't like Vashti was kicked out and the king couldn't control himself and he's saying another need another woman. Uh, the king truly did, I think, love Vashti and his heart was hurting. And so it seems like it was about two and a half, three years after Vashti was expelled before Esther is brought forth. And now then you've got this year of beauty treatments and we see this being presented. So just to put that perspective, I think is good for you to see that as well. Um, verse 19, when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality. 
just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. And so Esther here is wise in that she is receiving wise counsel. Um, her nature is to submit. It's how she was brought up. You know, the Bible says that we should, especially women, should train their children, their children to, especially their daughters, to grow up to be submissive to their husbands. That's what it says in the New Testament. Now, that kind of talk upsets a lot of people today. But this is exactly what Mordecai was doing with Esther. And I want to brag on some people here now, but I'm not going to do that. But there are some people close to me who I, I've seen that happen. And I, it's beautiful. I just, I think it is beautiful. What a blessing. And that is Esther right there. So, Proverbs chapter 1, here on the, well, I guess, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. I love that translation. Okay, it just speaks my language. Um, the only thing better is, if my family will get this, whoever hates correction is a moron. Okay, other than that, that's kind of a personal private joke. They just make fun of me because of the way I say moron. But Proverbs 10:17: whoever heeds discipline shows the way to life, but whoever ignores correction leads others astray. I mean, these are some very wise words. Proverbs 1:5: let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance. I mean, there are so many Proverbs that talk about this kind of thing, but to, to be able to listen and to have that submissive attitude. We've talked about many times the authority, the lack of authority in our society today, how we just don't respect authority and how important it is. And I think I, I don't know if it was here or if I was talking someplace else, but in regards to when I go to prisons and jails, I like to ask the inmates, if they can name the Ten Commandments. Do you know which t commandment is almost always left out? Honor your father and mother. If you don't learn to honor your father and mother as a child, there's a good chance you will never learn to honor your father in heaven. This is just showing the character of who Esther is here. And... Just by the way she is behaving and presenting herself here, you can tell she's destined for greatness. Um, there are people that I know that I just have in the past thought, God is going to do great things with that person. And even some now that I'm watching that it's like God is going to do some great things. Because I see how they present themselves in certain situations. I see how they walk in their day-to-day -day life honoring God. And it's beautiful. And it's just like, I can't wait to see what he's going to do. Um, if you will heed correction, there are blessings, as the Bible says here. If you don't, there's also curses. You're stupid. So... Um, what else is kind of interesting here to me is that she had kept secret her family background and nationality. One of the things you're going to see is that when they were taken captive, it's been a number of years, I don't know exactly how many, but the people have assimilated into the culture quite well. To where it's not obvious that this person's a Jew. And... I think that we have done a pretty good job of that in America, assimilating into the American culture, even in the church culture. We have assimilated quite well. And that may not always be a good thing. But there's that end of it. There's another angle that I can look at it, and that is that maybe there's a time that we might have to keep our identity secret. You know, in what's going on in this world, sometimes we have this idea, oh, well, it all comes, I'm going to be the one on the streets and, oh, you know, go ahead, shoot me, I don't care. And I have those days. 
But there's also wisdom to live to fight another day for the kingdom of God too. Even Paul was in those certain circumstances at times. There were times that he kept it a secret that he was a Roman citizen and took a beating. And at other times, he said, oh, I'm a Roman citizen. And I, I always wondered why. Why at some times did he pull out the card and at other times he didn't pull out the card? And I don't know the answer outside of I think it is probably something to do where the kingdom of God would be furthered or not. And so is it okay for us to hide in the corner a little bit sometimes? I think it is. It just depends on the circumstance. And I can't even tell you what those circumstances could be. I just find that interesting. For, for Esther, God was preserving her for this reason. She is going to save. God was going to use her to save the Jews. I mean, they would have been wiped out. So chapter 2, verse 21 says, During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes or Ahasuerus. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. When the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled all on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals of the presence of the king. Now, we're not told why these two men are angry with the king, but it is interesting that it's recorded shortly after Vashti has been removed from the kingdom. And maybe it was because they were loyal to Vashti. We don't know. But it could be a number of things. So in either, whatever it is, the plot against the king is foiled and the king's life is preserved. And as I'm sure you know the story of Esther, that's going to be important later. Uh, Mordecai, though... What I want to point out is at the right spot, at the right time, kind of like what we were just talking about, Esther, for such a time as this. This was all part of God's plan. I'm sure he just thought, I'm at the gate, I hear this, I'm going to squeal in a good way, and we see that it all works out for good. How many times do things happen in our life, maybe it's a flat tire driving down the road and you get all upset, but it might be for such a time as this because the person that comes to help you needed to hear that gospel. Or it kept you from being in that car accident five miles ahead. Or who knows, the thousands upon thousands of things. That to realize that our, our days, God is going to use us in things that we don't even understand why. Uh, we were talking about the chosen here recently. If you saw a couple of the disciples were... Um, Jesus told them to go plow this field. And so they spend all day plowing this field, breaking their back, hard work. And they're, why is he wanting us to do this? They had no idea why. And then later they see that they had plowed this for a guy who had a broken leg, who needed it, and all of this kind of thing. Point being is we don't know what God is doing, but we know God is active in our day-to-day -day lives. And so if you get fired, if you get in a car accident, if you get cancer, if... Who knows? We just have to trust that God is in control. He is indeed sovereign. And to learn to roll with it. Had a bad day. Oh well, it must be for a reason. Maybe we'll never know what some of those reasons are, and maybe some of those things are just life. Maybe some of it was the devil. But the way you be respond to that, there's a blessing in that, even if it was just the devil. So I just like the fact that he was there for the purpose of redeeming Israel. Without this happening, Esther wouldn't have happened. Yeah. That ends chapter 2. Now we get into chapter 3. It says, After these events, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. For the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. There's a lot here. First of all, the family history. We are told here that Haman is an Agagite. 
That is extremely important that that detail is put here because we see there is some history with the Agites, which are coming from the Amalekites. And the Amalekites are the ones that King Saul was told to go wipe out, don't keep anything. And Samuel comes to them. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 15, I think. And Samuel comes and he says, what's this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears? And Saul backpedals, oh, we saved those so that we could sacrifice them. And he says, didn't God tell you to wipe everything out, everybody and everything? Well, well, well you know, the men, the men, they were going to get angry and blah, blah, blah. And so he makes all these excuses. And it is because of that decision that ultimately Saul, the kingdom is stripped away from him. Samuel goes and kills Agag, the king. Saul was supposed to wipe him out and he didn't. Had Saul done what he was supposed to, we wouldn't be right here at this point already. That's one piece of the story. You could even back up further and see that this was promised. Um, the Amalekites were the first people that the Israelites meet when God brings them out of Egypt. And this is the one where you remember that Moses is sitting up on the top of the hill and he's got helpers to prop his hands up because as long as his hands were up, he was winning the battle. If his hands went down, then they would start losing. So his hands got so tired holding them up all day long that they had people hold his hands up for him. Now, I always see this, by the way, as a picture of the cross. You can just see you're down there fighting the battle. You look up and you see Moses like this. Just a reminder that God was fighting for them. But that's a, a whole other story. Let me show you here what it says, though, in Exodus 17 when this is going on. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So hundreds of years before Esther is even written, it was foretold that there was going to be war against the Amalekites and God's people. And here we see Agag from a descendant of the Amalekites, or I should say Haman, who is an Agagite, is trying to wipe out God's people. And it's interesting how Exodus describes this, that because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord. What I find interesting about that is going against God's people is in a sense going against the throne of God. I do firmly believe that when America goes against Israel, that's one of the final signs of it's over. Now, I don't know how long. You know, when I read stories in the Bible, it's boom, 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 just like we think Esther here, this is all happening in a year's time or whatever. We're already at, you know, four plus years. I'm finding, even like with all of this COVID-19 garbage, that so much of it, you know, it, it, when it's first coming, it's like, oh, this could be it. This, the Lord's coming back. Everybody's, you know, and here we are. But let me tell you, it's not over. This could drag out a couple of two, three, four, five, six, ten years. I don't know, but I know that things are still going on. God's timing is not our timing. And here we see the patience. Going back here to chapter 3. Haman is going to be a clear picture of the devil, Satan. We've seen King Ahasuerus as a picture of God. We see Esther as a picture of the redeemed. And Haman is going to be a picture of the devil. Now there's going to be some things in here that you're going to go, how in the world? But I'm telling you, you will see. He is a picture of the devil, perfectly. Wait, Haman? Why would we not see that part? That's the easy part. Uh... Why is God, Ahasuerus, giving Haman the authority to go kill the Jews? Why did he give him the authority to point out Job? Well, he has the authority on earth. 
Okay, we'll we'll come back to that. But those are the things that you go, oh, that can't be, and this whole analogy thing is going to fall apart. No, it will not. You'll see. So, one of the things that I love about it is this: Haman is elevated above all the others that are near the throne of the king. Think about that in connection with the devil. The devil was a created uh, angel, cherub of God, and the cherub are these elevated angels that are near the throne. They are the closest to the throne of God, just like Haman is here. And if you ever look at the Ark of the Covenant, uh, pictures of that, we see that the cherub are always over the mercy seat of God. That was who Satan was. And so, a perfect per picture of the devil. Let's look at Exodus, uh, or not Exodus, Ezekiel 28. And we see talking about earthly kings, but that making them kind of a picture of the devil here in Ezekiel. The, the king of Tyre, it says, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. Now, the king of Tyre was never in Eden like that. So this must be talking about Satan. He says, The garden of God, every precious stone adorned you, carnelian, chrysolite, emerald, topaz, onyx, jasper, lapis, lazuli, turquoise, beryl. That reminds me of something else that I find fascinating. In Islam, Islam is a very spiritual religion. They see visions and they see, you know, beings and stuff like that. Do you know their own writings in the Quran and, and whatnot talk about, I, I don't know if it was Muhammad, but basically, or if it's the Mahdi, but one of their people they worship, basically, is described like a peacock. And it goes through these very precious stones. And so many times in the Talmud, that is how it is described, who they worship. All these colors. And this is the way Satan is described here. So I find that fascinating. Just a little side note. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. For so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. So here is the devil in the garden of God, walking among the fiery stones. You were on the holy mount of God until disobedience, pride, wickedness was found in him. And it goes on. It says, through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence, you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, O guardian cherub. From among the fiery stones, your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. I think of those Proverbs again, that wisdom, they corrupted the wisdom by his pride. Pride goes before destruction. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire. Fire came out from you, and it consumed you. And I reduced you to ashes on the ground in sight of all who are watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. So anyway, Haman here is exactly this. Haman is going to be expelled from the kingdom. He is going to be made a spectacle of. And fire is going to come out from him on his own gallows. Pride. This man is like filled with it, as you're going to see. So he is the epitome of Satan in every way. And we'll hit on other things as we go, but for now I just wanted to show you that part. Like I said, you can't go a verse hardly without seeing a connection here in Esther. Verse 2, all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded his, this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. 
Mordecai, okay, is a picture of Jesus. He will not bow down to Satan. Satan tried in Matthew 4 over and over, if you will bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms, for they've been given to me. Don't forget that. That's what Satan said. Okay, you know, prove you're the son of God. All of this, all Satan wanted was worship. And all worship is, isn't just bowing down, but just following him in any way. Disobeying God is worshiping Satan. You all worship somebody. Whether you're an atheist or not, you worship somebody. You either worship God or the devil. Um, but we see in verse 4 that day after day, they spoke to Mordecai about this. Hey, you better bow down to the king. You, you better bow down. You better, you, you better submit. And he wouldn't do it. Well, of course he's not. Just like Satan came after Jesus day after day, time after time, to try and get him to do it, he's going to do that to you as well. Daily pressure is going to be put on us at some point if it isn't already, I think, but maybe even in more uh, up-in-your-face ways when it comes to taking the mark of the beast. And it could be argued that this whole mask mandate, kind of stuff like that, uh, I'm not going to say that that's the mark of the beast, don't get me wrong here. What I'm saying is, is that daily pressure and the ability to stand up against societal norms that if we can't stand up against something as small as that, how are you going to stand up against something where you really can't get food? I mean, you're, you're hungry and you cannot buy food unless you submit. So those are things that you have to think about. Will you withstand that daily pressure? Uh, Joseph, you think of Joseph. And what I like about it is this. Joseph daily was being harassed by Potiphar's wife. Come on, sleep with me, sleep with me. And daily he was pushing it away and saying, no, 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 no. Why? Because he knew. He says, how can I sin not only against Potiphar, but how can I sin against my God? He knew it was a sin against God to do that. And it was his righteousness that kept him daily uh, resisting that pressure. Now, I think that for us, I can find encouragement in that because I've seen that in some ways, even in my own life with some of this mask stuff. When you resist the day-to-day -day pressures of life, after a while it gets easier. To the point to where when you are pressured to do it, you dig in your heels even more. That comes naturally if you're a youngest child. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I am the youngest child, yeah. So my point wasn't stubbornness as much as that sometimes the exercise of our obedience to God makes us stronger and able to stand. If we don't exercise those muscles, they will atrophy. The bottom line is that that's what we need to do, is be exercising those faith and those little things now, because when we do, we do get stronger. And so I think that's what was going on with Mordecai in a sense. I mean, I don't think he was really tempted, but Daniel was told, you cannot pray anymore. He didn't go hide. He opened up the window so everybody could see, and he kept doing what he was going to do. Mordecai is told by the powers that be, just like, Joe, uh, just like uh, Daniel, you need to bow. People keep coming and talking to him. People of power, I'm sure. You've got to do this. No. Joseph, okay, uh, this is, the wife had some authority, it's not like Pharaoh or anything, but nonetheless, there's authority. And this leads me to the question then of sometimes when authority is telling us to do things, and I'm not going to go too far down this road, but we don't obey 
if the authority is telling us to do something that is ungodly. And you may say, well, Daniel could have just, you know, kept the doors closed and privately, but he was making a statement. It was what it was telling the world that he was also fighting against there. I'll leave it at that. Another thing that we see is it says Haman, he says, therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. Again, they had assimilated well. Apparently Haman didn't know that at first. And they told him he was a Jew because it explained why he would not bow down. Because Torah says we don't do that. So the Jews have this law of God, which says that you worship God and him only. In Exodus 20, verse 1, I am the Lord your God. You shall not make any carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And so he was just obeying God. This isn't out of youngest child stubbornness that Mordecai is doing this. This is out of bringing God honor and worship and praise by being obedient to him. We know that in Acts chapter 12, Herod does not, uh, well, he is worshipped by people, and he doesn't stop it, and he falls dead, and worms eat him. Acts chapter 12, verse 21. I, I, uh, I don't know if it was Josephus or who, but there's historical records that basically tell of this event. And it's interesting because they say that there was this big famine that had gone on and Herod had provided uh, money and food for them. And so the people were just, you know, puffing him up. They really didn't like him, but they were just puffing him up. He came and they started saying, oh, you're a god. And we're just giving him all this praise. And he was taking it and it says that he fell down and literally he had this disease that was so painful that he, it, it ate him from the inside out. Yeah, and so in the Bible, again, it's just like this one little event, it all happened in 30 seconds, but uh, at least historically, that he fell sick that day, but he didn't die immediately. But bottom line is, he was not stopping the worship of men. Even John, we see, you know, bows down before an angel, not realizing it, and the angel says, stop, no. Worship God only. You don't even worship angels. Only God. So anyway, obviously that's why Haman is not going to receive worship from Mordecai. Verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged, yet having learned into, uh, who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So, Haman being enraged because Mordecai won't bow down is very familiar to the devil as well. If we take you to Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, it says, And the dragon was enraged at the woman, and this woman seems to be Israel here, went off to wage war, against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Who, he's enraged because of what? Because they won't worship him. You say, well, how, how does it say that there? Well, think about it. How do you worship the devil? You don't have to go join a satanic church. You worship yourself. You worship yourself. You do anything that is disobedient to God. You disobey God, you worship Satan. That's all he wants. He is happy if you disobey him, disobey God, because he's receiving the worship. So yeah, worship yourself, that works. And so, who does he go after? He goes after those who won't worship him, those who obey God. Exactly what we see here in Esther. Haman is enraged at those who will not give him the honor that are giving it to God instead in obeying Exodus 20. 
Now, by the way, backing up just a little bit, notice how it said, Amon looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people. It's a strange way of putting it, isn't it? You may say, well, here it makes some sense, perhaps, you know, the, the Jews. But this is going to become important later as well, because clearly this is recorded for a reason. This isn't just saying, just going after the Jews. You'll, you'll understand that more later. You would think, but we don't see any sign of it in Scripture. Yeah, I, I've thought of that before. It's been a long time, but yeah, I mean, you must think like Mordecai, in his obedience to God, is putting all these other people at stake. Honestly, if we... I'm going to put this in a real human perspective that may not be comfortable, but what if somebody comes to you and says, I'm going to kill your child if you don't deny God. It's the same thing. I don't think I would regret saying, I'm sorry, I'm going to say, kids, I'll see you in heaven. And I don't think I would regret that. It would hurt. I'm going to have pain. But I'm not going to ever regret giving God honor and glory, no matter what the sacrifice is. This is a real story as well as the allegory that I think it goes on. This is true history. And so there had to have been human emotions that were part of it. I mean, they're, 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 you can't deny that. But I do find it's interesting who the devil goes after here is the rest of her offspring. That's exactly who Haman is going after. The rest of Mordecai's offspring. All of his people. So the way that's worded is significant. Um, Matthew 4, verse 8, we kind of see uh, when the devil takes Jesus to tempt him. The devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, and all this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Keep in mind, Mordecai is a picture of Jesus. Haman is a picture of the devil. In essence, we have round two right here. So Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord, the, uh, your God, and serve him only. Now Luke's version of the same thing of Matthew 4, of this temptation, adds a tidbit that, as I kind of brought up before, where the devil says, I'll give you all of these because they have been given to me. And I add that because we're going to see Haman has the authority. The devil had that power. He had that authority. We've talked about this before in the sense that when Adam was created, he had absolute full dominion, power, and authority until he sinned. When he sinned, that authority and power and dominion went to the devil. And the devil has it to this day, which is why he is still called the prince of this world. He now stands condemned, but he is the prince of this world. This is not home. He can have it. Okay, my kingdom is not of this world. And this is why it is not until the book of Revelation in chapter 11, it says when the seventh trumpet blows, now the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God. And the time to reward his saints has come. So, I think that's kind of an important thing to realize. And with our story here, our historical event of Esther, the same thing is happening. Haman is going to have that authority. Why? Because somebody is going to give it to him. King Ahasuerus. Where did the devil get his authority? God gave it to him. Because of the spiritual rules or whatever. So we're seeing that same setup. Here as well. Verse 7. In the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, in the first month, the month of Nisan. Anybody know what that's, what's going on there? In the month of Nisan. Spring festival of Passover. Okay. 
the purr, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people, and they don't obey the king's laws. It, it is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. So, so many comparisons here. It's interesting. There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples. In other words, Israel has been scattered throughout the world. Where are we right now? Israel has been scattered and dispersed. We're still there. The lost ten tribes, right? The lost tribes of Israel still haven't been found. The timing here of when these Jews were going to be wiped out is chosen by casting lots. Proverbs 16.33, and I might have these reversed, I don't know, says that casting lots settles disputes, but it's every decision... Okay, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 18.18, 18, the lot is cast into the lap, and its decision is from the Lord. It's interesting. What determines when the Jews are supposed to be wiped out? The lot. Who determines the lot? God. It's every decision is from the Lord. And so these guys think, oh, we're in control and my pagan gods are in control. But God is the one being in control. And isn't it interesting that the very day we're going to see here that... The announcement that we're going to kill you, Jews, is given, is going to be on the 14th of Nisan, or the day of Passover. The very day the Jews are going to be celebrating their deliverance from Pharaoh. From being, Pharaoh is a picture of the Antichrist and the devil as well, according to the Jews. That's what they see. And so... Even God is giving those little glimmers of hope to his people during the trial itself. Hey, we're going to kill you on... The, and, and the announcement is coming to Passover. These guys are celebrating, hey, God's deliverer! And now it's like, oh, we're going to live this out. Wait, what? And the lot fell on the 12th month. Yep, that's of Adar. But as you're going to see, the people are going to be told about this on the 14th. It'll be coming okay. up here. Yeah, I'm kind of jumping ahead. So, But as long as you bring that up, it's interesting as well that we see that it's the month of Nisan and now the month of Adar. Those are not Persian months. When you go back to the beginning of this book, we see it talks about when the king was... It's given in Persian months. Now, it's given in Hebrew months using the Hebrew calendar. And that is interesting because... I think that is just God again showing I'm in control of this. These are my dates. So, again, it's just showing God's in control. This is my timing. I, I think that's why it's there. Uh, we see uh, back in chapter 2, verse 16, uh, we see a Persian month being given. So, if you want to see, just jump ahead to verse 12. You're going to see that the edict is, that's where it's going to be given on the 13th of Nisan, is when the edict is given. And on the 14th, the day of Passover, the Jews are now, it's, it's spread out and told to everybody. So did we jump from the 7th year to the 12th year? Uh, yes, and that's why I have this highlighted as well. So the 12th month now, we've got five years down the road that this has been going on. So Esther has been in, you know, in the throne room for some time. And what I want to point out there is, you know, like in normal society, we hear that, you know, there's the seven-year thing when people get married and a lot of people get divorced by then. And a lot of people wonder, did Esther, was she really loved by the king or is she just another one of the harem? Hey, we've gotten a lot of time that's gone on and she is still in the king's graces here. And... I remember reading, thinking, well, Esther, you know, what, what, 
what if he doesn't let me in? If the king doesn't, you know, extend the scepter, I'm toast. It makes more sense that she would wonder about, it's been five years. I mean, we're not newlyweds, okay? But there's going to be some indications that the king really does love her. And with this analogy, that would make sense as well. But some of the words that are going to be used in the Hebrew, will select, or Aramaic here, is going to show you that they, there's love here. This is not just a, a, a sleeping partner. Okay? Notice that these people, it says, their customs are different from those of all other people. They have different laws. They are a special people. I'll show you that here um, in a verse uh, coming up here in Deuteronomy. But I, I like how he says, too, there's certain people. I kind of see it as this. Haman, kind of using our analogy that we're seeing here again, Haman is not going to give God's people any kudos at all. They're just to him like a number. Uh, it's been said kind of like the Jews of the concentration camps. You don't give them a name, they get a number. There's a certain people of no significance at all. And so uh, it's impersonal, it's emotionally removed. Um, put that in contrast to what God calls us. You're not a number. You're special. God calls us by name. He's going to pronounce our name before his Father in heaven. He calls us the people of Israel or the children of Abraham, all of those, because we've been grafted into that covenant. So yes, you are the children of Israel. You are the, the children of Abraham because by faith you have become one. Okay? Now, there are some differences between you and a native-born Jew who knows Jesus, but you're also considered native-born Jew in some ways. So, anyway. Verse 5 of chapter 4 in Deuteronomy is one of these verses that talk about us being a, a special people that is separate and different, at least we're supposed to be. I ought to be able to go and know exactly who's a Christian in town without having to figure it out. Deuteronomy 4, 5 says, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations. Who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them, the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Now on one hand, you look at that and say, well, that seems to be the opposite of what's going on here in Esther. Well, that's on the outside surface exactly what it's going on. But wait till the end of the story, and you see, no, this is really what's going on. That their laws do set them apart. Their laws raise them up above any other nation. They, their laws make them special. And let me tell you, it's no different in the church. If we are Christians, if you love him, you will do what he says, if you say you love him and you continue to sin, you do not love him. I'm not saying you don't, you know, you're perfect. We all fail. But I'm saying if you're not living the Christian life, you don't love him. You don't know him. You think you do, you're playing a good game, but you're pretending. And that is what makes us different. Clearly, even though they had been assimilated into the culture, there was enough going on to where they said they don't follow our rules. I think Haman was still kind of this uppity guy, and as far as the people went, he didn't know what they did. He didn't care about them. But clearly, those under Haman understood, yeah, they, they, they live differently. And that's what we need to be doing is living differently. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and bottom line is we can even look at this group. I mean, we get called a cult because we're going to talk about things that 
normal church people don't talk about. We'll talk about obedience, right? We'll talk about the festivals of God. We'll talk about some of those things. It, these are supposed to be given to us, though, as a gift for a benefit and a blessing. And I think anybody who starts walking in obedience to Christ, failing at times, yes, but walking and chasing because they have a heart after God, sees the blessings of it. You know, it doesn't matter, even if their life... They, I've seen people die of cancer with smiles on their faces because of the joy of the Lord. Because this world is not their home. That's part of the blessings that come. We could go on and on on that. Verse 9. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger, gave it to Haman, son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. And this is what I was talking about before. The signet ring was a symbol of authority. And God gives that to the devil when Adam fell. And here we see Ahasuerus gives it to Haman. This is exactly what's going on. And as we go, it's going to make even more sense. But that is very important. Uh, where have we heard this before? This authority, besides the Garden of Eden, right here in Revelation. Same exact thing. It's like we're reading the book of Revelation. The dragon, the devil, stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns, seven heads, ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. So notice the devil is going to give power to his little minions under him as well. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. In Revelation, we see God gives the devil the authority to go after his people. And you go, but, whoa, that doesn't make sense. Not our loving God. He wouldn't do that. Ah, uh, yeah, he did. And that's exactly what we're seeing here in Esther. He did, in some sense, already. What is the devil doing? He roams around looking like a lion looking for someone to devour. He's going to even give more power, yep. But in a sense, he already has been given authority when Adam fell. Esther 3, verse 12, Then on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, governors of the various provinces, the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Ahasuerus himself, sealed with his own ring. In other words, his authority. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women, children, on a single day. The 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. I think this is a foreshadowing of what the scriptures would call the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation that's coming. The declaration to destroy the Jewish people is getting the green light here. And it's by God himself in reality. There's going to be no place to hide. It goes out to the whole world. And this is exactly what Revelation describes. The whole world is going to come against God's people. All the nations will come against them. And like I said before, this is the night on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned and they write it out. Okay? And then we go on here. 
A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out spurred on by the king's command and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Well, why is God or Ahasuerus going to allow this? Why would he do that? Well, you're going to see that in a moment. But before we do answer that question, notice that they were bewildered. It made no sense. They hadn't committed any crime. They're, they're just like, what do we do? You know? It's interesting to me that today, do you know that Christians are hated by just about everybody, and yet when there is some uh, tragedy in another country, a uh, hurricane, do you know who's the first ones going out to help? Christians. Yeah, <laughs> but a lot of Christians give money to that. Christians are one of the primary people that go out and help, and yet we are hated. It's like, why? It makes no sense, right? So there's that bewilderment. But the other interesting aspect is, as you said, the city of Susa. This isn't just the Jews that are bewildered. I think that that's implied in there as well, but it's also the whole city. In other words, it seems like it's the, the people in power because there were people that were in the city of Susa that were not Jews that are going like, what, why? I like my neighbor. What's going on? But the people in power, they were the ones that are really going after. And that's kind of the way it is. Satan is the one that hates the Jews. He's the one that hates the Christians. He has always gone after us. And what he does is he always is trying to get the world to hate you. And he's done a good job of it. He's sent out an edict already, in essence, to go after Christians and Jews. It amazes me that that's always the people that are under attack, Christians and Jews. You've got 11 months from the edict until we're going to wipe them out. And it does give them time for the upper, the power Haman to spread the propaganda of why these people are so evil. And I'm sure that's probably what went on. It's Frank Turek who said that laws make good um, moral values. They dictate moral values. And what he meant by that was, it's like I use the example of Britney Spears was caught driving her car holding her baby in her hand. And everybody was like, she's a monster. She's an evil woman. She should be put in jail. She should have her kids taken away. Yet when I was a kid, my dad would drive to the dump and I would be in the back of the car, in the back of the pickup, going side to side, having a ball, and he would even tap on the brakes from time to time to make sure I was paying attention. And nobody was telling him that he was an evil father. Okay? But today you wouldn't get away with that. You'd be pulled over by the police immediately. Why? Because there's seatbelt laws. So the laws dictate the moral values. And we see homosexuality, when, that, when uh, homosexual marriages were legalized, it was almost overnight. Uh, at some of these conferences that I speak at, uh, there, there's like a, a huge 22,000 like, kids of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod that gather every year, and they take a poll and ask, and some of the questions are about homosexuality. It went up like 50% in, in one year after that. We look at history and we see how the Jews, this has happened so many times, the, Jew, the pogroms, you have the uh, blood libels, where blood libels they were called, where basically the rumor was spread that the Jews were stealing kids and using their blood to sacrifice their kids and use the blood for their sacrifices and things like that. And so Jews were wiped out. The Black Plague, they blamed the Jews on the Black Plague um, because the Jews weren't getting sick where everybody else was. And because the Jews were obeying God and they, they were, had clean rules, they weren't getting sick. So because they weren't, they said, oh, the Jews, this is the Jews doing it. And so they, that started some of these problems because of the Black Plague. So anyway, it's happened all throughout history. And another thing, too, is we see the fact that the city of Susa is bewildered. There, there's a lot of confusion going on. I had an, an email from another friend of mine in Israel, and um, he was telling that now he can go to the store, 
and it's hard because you don't know if you if that person sees you as an enemy or not you just don't even know and because of the hatred and everything that's going on so it's just a very strange thing you said a strange environment to be in i kind of picture it this way can you imagine for those 11 months a jew going downtown knowing i'm going to be dead in 11 months at least that's what and are you going to be the one that kills me are you going to be the one that kills me that's kind of what's happening in some senses in Israel right now. I mean, that, that feeling, based on this email he gave me, it, it just it made me think of this right away. Were they slaves? Were they not allowed to leave? Because if I hear that, I'm like, sorry, I'm Yeah, that's a good question, and I don't know what the situation was. Yeah. Where do you go? Now we think we can travel around the world. For them, that was the world. They owned the world. If you remember the very first week, we showed you how much of the empire, of the world that was Persian. They were the world power. Where could you go? I'm sure that's what they were thinking. Where can I go? I'm going to keep moving because otherwise I'm trying to finish this up. But uh, I'm going to take you to the prophets here to see why would God allow this to happen. Zechariah 14.1, a day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. This is a prophecy of end times, that Jerusalem is going to someday be divided. Half of the city is going to go into exile. Everybody today in the Christian church is like, oh, I, I mean, this is great. You know, Israel, Israel is like the golden place and God's going to fight for Israel. Yes, he is, but not before there are some trials that they're going to go through first because he's not going to fight for them just because they're Jews. He's going to fight for them when they call out to him and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. There is trouble coming for Jerusalem yet. Let me, you mark my words. And if you look at the peace treaties that have been throughout the last administrations and whatnot, even in Obama, or, uh, uh, Trump, what is the plan? To cut the city in half, to divide Jerusalem up. Okay? And so, it's interesting in the news we see this push to divide Jerusalem going on as we speak, and Zechariah has predicted this, and so has Joel, as you're going to see here on this next slide. And before I leave, though, Persia is modern-day Iran. Iran is not friends with Israel today. Okay, So um, when you see this happening, Israel being divided, look up. Joel 3.1, we'll close out with this verse for tonight. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, the Jews, my people, Israel. Because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land, just like Zechariah said. They cast lots for my people, isn't that interesting? Traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine to drink. So why is God gathering the nations to Jerusalem against his people? To get them in one spot so he can wipe them out. To protect his people. And that is exactly what you're going to see happening in the book of Esther. Is... All the people are all excited to kill, and then they're, they're ready, and the tables are going to be turned. Same thing that happens here in the end of time. He is going to destroy those nations. Why does God allow Haman to go against Mordecai? To destroy Haman and all those who hate his people. So while it looks like the world is falling apart, while it looks like God is not in control... He is in control. Like we said, that's why I think those Hebrew calendar dates are given. God is saying, hang on. This is being announced on the day of Passover. Don't forget that. And we have those same promises today, guys. 
if this world continues to fall apart, don't forget those promises. It's supposed to happen this way. It is going to happen. There is going to be trials and tribulations in Israel yet. That city is going to be divided someday. And I think there are a lot of people going to be freaking out because of it. Don't freak out. God's got this. He told you it was going to happen. And he's doing it for a reason. It's got to get worse before it's going to get better. And the prayer is, is that when that does happen, then there are going to be people crying out to God and there will be a true revival. Sometimes they get tired of hearing about all these revivals in the church. Revival, revival, revival. Oh, you know, there won't be one until people repent. Okay, today people see revival as a bunch of people raising their hands and saying, oh, I love God. Now let me continue to live my life the way I've always wanted to live my life. That's not revival. Packing your people with your churches with people who praise God with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him, that is not revival. Revival is going to be a change of the heart and people following after the commandments and righteousness of God. That will be the revival. So with that, we see the hope coming here for Israel. It seems bleak for them, but it's not. There's hope, and we will see that here as we continue next time. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your promises, your faithfulness, and your power. We know, Lord, that there is nothing that's going on that you are not aware of or in control of, and that you will protect us. Father, the worst that can happen is we can go and be with you. <laughs> Bring it on. We thank you for that, that uh, we fear not death. As Logan was saying with his grandfather, Lord, he has just begun to live. And help us to understand that truth, that we fear not anything of this world. The people, that we fear not the, the looks, the mockery, the names, but that we fear the name of the Lord our God. In Yeshua's name we pray, amen.